My Family Thinks I'm Crazy, a podcast where I, your host, try to give you some tips on how you can explain all this weird, wild, crazy conspiracy stuff to the people you love most, because that's what I've been trying to do for the past 10 years with no success. I've been telling everybody that I got them in a shade. symmetry of a pine cone or a flower, pondered the peculiar nature of the platypus, or wondered how birds seem to navigate with such ease and precision. Science aims to understand the world around us, and to some that ideal is lost, but not today's guest, who's achieved a stunning discovery that has groundbreaking implications in all fields of the scientific understanding. Dr. William Craig Birdwell joins me, Mystic Mark, here on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. Thank you for tuning in and enjoy this conversation with Dr. Birdwell. Ladies and gentlemen, here we are back again on the My Family Thinks Some Crazy podcast. And with me today is a returning guest for all of you Patreon and Rockfin supporters. But he is new to the free side of the show, and I am excited to have him here for this groundbreaking discussion. We are discussing, to use that word twice, the full simulacrum system. Okay, the unit simulacrum, which is a term that Dr. Birdwell here is going to explain. The great Dr. Birdwell is here on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. How are you today, sir? Great. Happy Friday, Mystic Mark. It's certainly great to be back on your show, and thanks for having me back for a more informal chat. Yes, informal indeed. It's a pleasure to have you here, and... We did spend, I don't know if that what, an hour, two hours, the last time we chatted, and you presented essentially what is a breakthrough, a finding that came to you while working in seemingly an unrelated field. But actually, once you fully understand the simulacrum, you 
may understand how through analogy, this kind of relates to everything around us, right? This, this discovery you made and what it, what it really spells out for, I guess, one of these big questions that many of us have, and that is, where are we, right? I think that's the simplest way to, to put it, but so many scientists, religious thinkers, philosophers have attempted to explain where are we? And in this digital technological age, the phrase simulation has come up a lot. Now, as we dive into this conversation, maybe a good way to start would be, A, tell the folks about yourself, but B, I want to know what is the distinction between a simulacrum and a simulation? Because I imagine there's a distinction between the two. Yeah, first of all, uh, yeah, thanks. I just did want to mention that the the heart of the simulacrum that ties to every, that makes it universal, the key lesson that's learned is that everything is ratios of ratios of ratios of ratios. That's generally the principle, and the simulacrum is a framework that describes how that is manifested. So the simulacrum versus simulation. All right, so we might as well get to where the name simulacrum came from. So I took it directly from one of my favorite movies of all time, The Matrix, of course, which is that I was discovering this stuff Just uh, The Matrix had just been out a couple of years. And in the movie, when the software, when the guys come to pick up the uh, illicit software and Neo pulls it out of a book where he keeps it, the name of the book is Jean Baudrillard's Simulacrum and Simulation. So it was actually one of five books that the Wachowski brothers at, at that time Uh, had each of the leads of the Matrix read. And in order to understand the Matrix better, I thought they wanted them to read those to get into the right mindset. I wanted to read those. And so you can look back at, there was some interviews that list what five books they were. It was, I don't remember all five, but Simulacrum and Simulation by Joan Baudrillard is one. And so I bought it and I bought all of them and read them and I got through most of simulacrum and simulation, but it's like hacking through a jungle with a butter knife. It's that real thick, heavy rhetoric. And I just kind of got the the uh, the ideas out of it that I needed. But the principle that I pulled out of it in order to use the name was that a simulacrum is a system. It might start as a simulation where it is a model that kind of represents another, let's say, a model for reality, for instance. But the simulation becomes so thorough and effective that it completely encompasses and subsumes the original. Uh, Like a meme might be an example where some meme takes off and just completely subsumes the original meaning of whatever, but it just takes off and goes. So that's what the mathematics did that I found In the very fundamental first publication called The Bottom-Up Solution, The Bottom-Up Solution was a system that was so efficient in expressing the information, it was like a compressed data set. It required fewer critical ratios to express the data than the raw data itself. And so it was like a compressed data set. So that's what The math was, it was a simulacrum because it was even more efficient at expressing the data set than the original data set itself. So does that kind of tie in 
all those simulacrum simulation or kind of put it in perspective? Yeah, it seems like it's a self-organizing hierarchy, if I could use that term. Yeah, that and but it kind of goes beyond that it, to the point where it actually replaces the original thing that was it was intended to to model. But actually, I took that. I kind of once I took that name though, the simulacrum function that I applied the name to is a different function. It accomplishes that purpose. It fits under the category of simulacrum, but as the simulacrum, it's a new function and thought form. That is so foundational to everything that that's why you'll see on my website when I say everything is a simulacrum, but I also uh, always qualify it. Everything written can be put in the form of a simulacrum. All right. Where do we begin for people who are new to this whole idea? Because I want to make this as attainable as possible for people. Everybody's heard of simulation theory, but what you're talking about essentially puts a lot of credit to that idea, right? I mean, do you have any, I guess, clarifications in that realm? Would you agree with those who say that we're living in a simulation based on what you've discovered? Finding a fundamental, of course, what I found was not just the simulacrum, but it was also whole pie and the new equations behind and a unified form of equations behind space, mass, and the periodic table. So what I really found is a framework under everything, and the very first application of that framework is the system of dimensions that just follow a common pattern. When you see such a similar, simple common pattern behind everything, it certainly supports the possibility that, and really, it's all one thing that, that is key, key in the simulacrum system is what's called the interpretation matrix. It's the definitions. So when I told you earlier that the simulacrum is ratios of ratios, it really boils down to unit definitions. So you define something, a new something, a car, what, you know, what are the characteristics of a car? And so the first car that you define and then from then after, everything else is relative to that original car that was defined. And it may change over time, whatever. But And then there are ratios of ratios. There are blue cars, red cars, large cars, small cars. So there's size ratios, color ratios. So, sorry, what was the original? What, let me get back to your question so I don't get too far. I, my question is, would you agree with folks who say we're living in a simulation based on what you discovered, not just the one, but yeah, well, everything you've discovered. Yeah. What I did say is that my math certainly supports that possibility. It doesn't provide contrary evidence, let me put it that way. It supports the possibility, and that's not my specialist. I, I would normally I'd say I, I stay in my lane, and so I wouldn't talk about the computer simulation hypothesis of, of psychology, but I will certainly say that consciousness, that the fundamental aspect of the simulacrum is that it's a function that's based explicitly on consciousness and definitions, definitions of units. And in fact, when I say that, what I mean is it's called the interpretation matrix. So part of a simulacrum, now you ask how we can approach this. I could just simply show, just put up a picture of a simulacrum 
Yeah, and please. then we can actually work through the simulacrum that I made for you, if you want, and we can see how that uh, follows the general form of a simulacrum. So I can just let me. I'm gonna I'm gonna scroll down here, and then I'll share. Sure. This is what's called the first general form of a simulacrum, and I'm going to describe it for those. And let me see. You're not seeing that yet, are you? Uh, let me. I do, I do see something behind you. Behind, but I want you to see. Let's see. So I'm going to share screen as this. That should. Okay, now that should let you see it a lot better. Great. That looks great. Okay. So these are the basic components of a simulacrum. So the first thing that you say is the simulacrum sum or the sim sum of A and B, and we just put it in parentheses A comma B, the sim sum of A comma B equals the mathematical sum. So it does equal the sum A plus B, but it equals it in the form of this construct. You get the sum in the form of this construct. Now, the construct has a couple of components. The first component is the possibilities to observe. Plus two obs, we say quickly. Uh, if you have A and B, so the thing about a simulacrum is it allows you to determine the simulacrum sum of the sum of two things in terms of a value and a ratio. That's the key, a value and a ratio. So this is a way of breaking anything and everything into a value and a ratio. And the way that I discovered it and the reason that I discovered it in the first place is because I was using ratios of fragments in mass spectrometry spectra, called mass spectra, to determine structural information about how they're digested and taken into the body and stuff. The fragment ratios tell how the fats are aligned. So I was looking at ratios. And this is, the simulacrum is how to put anything and everything in the form of a value and a ratio. And so let's go ahead and just look at, take a look. And so the possibilities to observe, there are four and only four. You can observe A directly, or you can observe B directly, or you can observe A over B, the ratio, or you can observe the ratio B over A. If you have two things, A and B, that's the four things you can observe. A, B, A over B, B over A. Those are the possibilities to observe. Okay, now we go inside the braces. Inside the braces are the two cases. Everything is either case one or case two. And if we, so in case one, A is less than B. In case two, A is greater than B. In, I can, for case one, not only is A less than B, therefore B is greater than A, and the ratio A over B is less than one, and the ratio B over A is greater than one. And so case two is just the opposite of that. A is greater than B, so therefore B is less than A. A over B is greater than one. B over A is less than one. So that's just simply the construct. And there are four solutions, and each solution has a value on the outside multiplying one plus either one plus a ratio or one plus one over a ratio. So that's the thing. That's the way that things always kept working out in the simulacrum. It's always either a thing, so either one plus a ratio or one plus one over the ratio. 
So it's either one plus a thing or one plus the inverse of a thing. And that's how it covers all the bases and is all inclusive. Okay. So then you have the four. So the four solutions are you have item A and then the ratio A over B or item A and the ratio B over A. That's the two solutions using A and those two ratios. Or you could use B if that's the one that you're observing directly. And plus one, I'm sorry, B times one plus A over B. So the A over B ratio or B times one plus one over B over A. So the inverse ratio. So it's one plus the ratio or one plus one over the ratio. So that's the way the solutions work out. Each one you can see is one plus a ratio or one plus one over a ratio. And you observe a value and a ratio for each solution. And you have case one and case two solutions. And the matrix, the interpretation matrix defines the units. What is A? What is B? How? What does the relationship of A over B versus B over A mean? For instance, in our English upbringing, we understand as A being the first letter of an alphabet and B being the second letter. So alphabetically, A would be less than B. So case one, A. So in our understanding, A would be less than one. A less than B, if you just want to even think of it in terms of the order of the letter appearance, even before you use those to represent as, as, as ratios. So that what I'm saying is the interpretation matrix defines everything. And in fact, the first element of the interpretation matrix is the simulacrum itself. <laughs> so in the interpretation matrix, you start with saying, this is a simulacrum, I am the interpretation matrix. What do you got? And you put in your ratios. Right. Now, can we see these equations with examples instead of A and B? Absolutely. I prepared one. I wish I had a little more time. I would like to have smoothed it out a little bit better, but I made Mystic Mark's very own simulacrum. Okay. Uh, I'm based excited. on what I thought you might be interested in. Listeners, be warned. I have never seen this before, and I'm excited to see it. So I just told you that I discovered on all of this stuff through, oh, uh, let me see. I'm not sharing this properly yet. I'm, yeah. So I just told you that I discovered all this stuff through the ratios of fragments in my data. So what? So the first thing to do is, and what I told you is that I wanted to find critical ratios that provided the information that I wanted. Hmm. So I was thinking about you, what kind of information would you be interested in? What would a critical ratio be that you might be able to derive some information from? Let's say, for instance, it would be subscribers over listeners. How many of your listeners are subscribers? You always want to get that ratio up. <laughs> you want to increase your ratio. You want to increase the numerator and the denominator as well, if possible. So this so far, that's analogous to the type one triglyceride analysis that I did. That's just a simple ratio like that. So that's just kind of the first step. Now, the thing to realize, though, is that listeners itself is made up of subscribers and the unsubscribed. So listeners, so subscribers itself is a subset of listeners. If you put listeners in the denominator, you're going to really have subscribers in your ratio twice. So that's not really the most efficient ratio. I mentioned something about this in the original presentation when we talked, and I said that I had 
done this for a particular reason because the ratio wasn't the most efficient I could find. And that's what we're going to look at here. Is this the most, let's hone in on the proper ratio for you to use for simulacrum analysis. So if we say subscribers over listeners is a ratio you'd be interested in, but listeners equals subscribers plus the unsubscribed, then we, the ratio really becomes subscribers over subscribers plus the unsubscribed, because that's what listeners are, right? So then now we're at a type two situation. The math just got a little one level more complex. You have a sum in the bottom now that is actually adding to be the sum that was there earlier. And so if we divide both the numerator and the denominator by subscribers, then that simplifies to one over one plus the ratio unsubscribers over the subscribe. You see that? That if you divide subscribers by subscribers, that's one. Divide subscribers by subscribers again, that's one. Divide the unsubscribed by subscribed subscribers. I'm sorry, there's a typo there. should say subscribers. Anyway, you get the important point here is that what you thought the original ratio that we were thinking about was the subscribers over listeners, but now we can see that's actually a complex ratio that's one over one plus the simpler ratio, unsubscribers over the unsubscribed over subscribers. So really it's that ratio that we should focus in on. We should really, now we should, so we should really focus in on this unsubscribed over subscribers because that's the simpler one, you see? But if we're going to focus in on that one, then it automatically comes with its inverse, the subscribers over the unsubscribed. And so we'll decide and we can choose which ratio to want. We want to use, and there's a reason that we would want to choose one or the other, and let's make that decision right now. It's that can either of these, or which is likely likelier to go to zero first? Because you don't want zero in a denominator. That gives an irrational number. You want a zero if it's going to happen. You want it in the numerator. So it could conceivably be that you might have some listeners, even though you get down to zero subscribers, you might have some unsubscribed who are still listening. But I hope it never happens that you get to zero subscribers. But it's possible. And so you can't get to, I guess it would be possible to have every single listener subscribed, but that would be an unusual situation. It's that you're more likely to have listeners who are unsubscribed and no subscribers rather than having only listeners who are subscribed and no unsubscribed ones, right? Yeah, I guess it would depend on a few variables, exactly what we're defining as a subscription. If it was a subscription To Patreon, I'd say, yeah, there's probably a much smaller group of subscribers. If it's somebody using an app, I think the chances of them subscribing are much higher because it's a convenience thing where someone wouldn't... uh, The critical question that I was asking is, which one is more likely to go to zero while having some of the other one left? That's the, because whichever one's more likely to go to zero, we want to put in the numerator if possible. But to be honest, yeah, I think is, it's, it's more likely that the unsubscriber would go to zero because out of convenience, people just subscribe to a podcast that they want to listen to again if they excellent. listen. All right. That's good. The truth is that it, the simulacrum 
supplies all solutions, whether selected or unselected, chosen, not chosen. Even if we don't make the right choice, it doesn't really matter because we'll get the right answer. It gives all the right answers, no matter what. Okay. I assume that if we start with unsubscribed, subscribed over unsubscribed, then let's see the possibilities to observe if you have the sub just subscribers in the unsubscriber to unsubscribe, you can observe subscribers or you can observe the unsubscribed. You can observe the ratio subscribed over unsubscribed or unsubscribed over subscribed. Oops, what happened? And again, you just pick whichever one is more convenient for you because you're going to have all the answers. Now, the I just wanted to make point here. So yeah, the so the listeners is the sum of the subscribers and the unsubscribed. So the sum of these two things, we just want to reiterate, is listen all listeners, whether subscribed or unsubscribed. So then we'll go ahead and make the Mystic Mark simulacrum. So the sum of all things, the sum of all is listeners. And that's the simulacrum sum of subscribers and the unsubscribed which is also equal to the mathematical sum of the subscribers and the unsubscribed. And so the possibilities to observe are subscribers or the unsubscribed or the subscribed over the unsubscribed versus unsubscribed over subscribers. With me? Yeah. And so case one, oh, I did not, I thought I had, oh, this, uh, sorry, it didn't save the last uh, version. This, uh, this, this, yeah, sorry, I lost the last revision when my computer crashed. So the, the case one is that the subscribers are less than the unsubscribed. Subscribe case two is the opposite. What it, so that is, so what that did is it forced you to hone in on what's the critical race. So what's the thing that you can observe directly? Like for instance, with Patreon, you can observe subscribers directly because they have to subscribe. You have their name and number and stuff. If you're going to observe the subscribers versus the unsubscribed, the subscribers is the thing you have an actual number for. And then you probably have the total listener count. So you don't have the unsubscribed necessarily directly counted. So you would get that from the total number of listener, listeners, subtract the subscribers, and that would be your unsubscribed. And then you would try to increase the ratio of subscribers to unsubscribe. Okay. And, you know, it, it, so. That is just a framework, though. So I, so it depends on what you do with that. So when I applied it to mass spectrometry, it was a three-level deep nested set of equations that then turned out to the what's called the critical limits that are built into the system turned out to give Fibonacci ratio as they were the way they were nested into each other, and so from there. They what they really gave was something that I later found this was called continued fractions. And this guy, William Jones, the guy who was also responsible for naming the the modern definition of pi, he worked with continued fractions. And so it's this right here. So can you can you see my screen again? So let me, there's the duplicate slides slideshow and I'll share my screen just to show the nested ratios. So this was the way that it, the mathematics of the mass spectrometry worked out is that this one over one plus one, that's what's called the first decrement. A unit simulacrum in that example that in the 
first general form of a simulacrum that I showed you. In fact, it's let me let me show the the first general form of a simulacrum. Okay. So I thought it might be helpful just to go back just to the the simulacrum. Just yeah, just so there's the first general form of a simulacrum. So the possibilities to observe, and then the critical ratios, and then case one a less than b, case two a greater than b, and then you can see why the octahedron was selected as the symbol for the simulacrum because the four solutions up above, which are actually case one. So the four case one solutions, which mathematically would be below, and then the case four case two solutions, which mathematically that would be the top upper four sides of the octahedron. Are you here? Yeah. 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 Oh, did you, did you, were you, did you see the, no, was the first general form? Oh, Okay. That was not up on the screen. Okay. So you're saying I, uh, that each four of these potentialities are the four sides of that octahedron you showed us? Sure. The case one are the four lower sides of the octahedron because A is less than B. And then the four upper sides are case two, A greater than B. Right. Wow. And what the whole point, I, I tried to put it in terms of the subscribers and the listeners unsubscribed that maybe it wasn't as effective as I had hoped. But the point is that the interpretation matrix ties consciousness to whatever symbols you want to run through the simulacrum. The simulacrum is just machinery. It's just a, it's just a framework. You just grind anything through it. Now, one thing that's interesting here, though, is now we haven't talked about it yet, but a, a unit simulacrum is when one value is one. So either A or B is one. And so whenever you're defining one of something, like the defining unit of something like one A, you'd have a simulacrum with A and one. And it also turns out that there is, in fact, there's a unit simulacrum built in to every simulacrum solution. There's one plus a ratio or one plus one over a ratio. So that is built in to the very framework itself. So there, within these brackets, I almost think of those like Schrodinger's box. You've the old Schrodinger's cat thing. You put the cat in and you don't know the fate of the cat until you open the box. Look in. So you can put A and B and use any of those solutions that are available to you. And whatever comes, then your solution comes out the other side of the box. Hmm. For instance, when we were talking about listeners versus the unsubscribed, I'm sorry, subscribers, sorry, subscribers versus the unsubscribed. So A equals subscribers, B equal the unsubscribed, and which is more easy for you to observe directly the subscribers okay so then you would choose the solutions that have a on the outside here and then i was just trying to make just provide an example that one may not be super meaningful or perfect for you but it was just to kind of give you an idea of how anyone can use the simulacrum and it at least makes you think about the ratio the nature of the ratio which version of the ratio you want the ratio or its inverse depending on which values can go to zero. And when I was solving the solutions for mass spectrometry, 
mass spectrometer. So the unit simulacrum, let me step back and look at the title of this slide. It says the first general form of a simulacrum. So it, in general, if I just simply say the simulacrum, this is really what I'm talking about. Now, there's also something called the anti-simulacrum, which is where case one has B less than A, and case two has B greater than A. And so like in our reality, like in the alphabet, alphabetically speaking, A is less than B, so we would align that to be, that's case one. But it doesn't have to be. The simulacrum, in, in if you actually defined everything completely backwards, and or you didn't even know the definitions, and you guessed wrong, or no matter what, the anti-simulacrum catches all possibilities, even for the mistake and mislabeled or misunderstood ratios. It, so even if you think B is less than just... So the anti-simulacrum and the, this right here, the first general form of the sim. So this covers all normal situations. That's why we just call this the simulacrum. But this plus the anti-simulacrum make up the whole simulacrum system. Now, within, but we can mostly kind of forget about the anti-simulacrum for most general purposes. We can just deal with the first general form here called the simulacrum. And so then the first thing you do that's the general form you can make one the first specification that you would make is that you would specify one or the other that one of the other of those values is one and so just so we can keep using the letter a we could say b equals one and so we would make the simulacrum one and a and so that would be a unit simulacrum a unit simulacrum with one and a and so what you'd get is every, everywhere where you see a B here, you'd have a one. And so on the right side of the screen over here, where you have one, 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 and all of these, then the ones can be just ignored and cancel out, and you simplify down to either one plus a ratio or one plus one over a ratio. So the solutions simplify if one value is one. And so you can select or pick the simplified solution because it's the easiest one. It's the one where you need less information about it. And so with mass spectrometry, there are two specifications. There are two specifications for mass spectrometry. One value has to be one, and no value can be greater than one. So A and B would have to both stay less than 100% or one. Anyway, the simulacrum system, when you use it to in mass spectrometry, it keeps coming up and being used over and over again because one of the values is always one because of the rules of mass spectrometry. So then you get the simplified solutions and then you simplify them. And, but then when you get these things less, nested three levels deep, then that's where you get to the Fibonacci series and the phi ratio. So this was how I used the these things for mass spectrometry, but then these led to, so this is the continued fractions that William Jones talked about, and he used them to find a solution to pi, and these are the kinds of solutions that the map led to, and you can see as you go from one-half to three-fifths to five-eighths, these are the Fibonacci ratios, 
and these are called continued fractions, and those Fibonacci ratios converge to the phi ratio and to one over the phi ratio. So the example that I tried to use for you, the subscribers versus the unsubscribe may not have hit home, but in a way it is interesting to think that let's say I gamified my podcast somehow to where every listener had an incentive to tell a friend to listen. And then there would be maybe another, I don't know, equation that would come from the amount of people who heard that, told a friend, heard that, didn't tell a friend, or maybe didn't hear that, but listened to the episode. And then I would imagine that that would would be nested. And I would imagine that would probably create a sort of compounding effect where more and more people would end up subscribing if each listener had an incentive to share the episode with a friend. Yeah, wow. I I could see. So, what you would be involved in then is trying to optimize your ratios. You'd Mm. pick the critical ratio and you need to get this number up, you need to get this numerator up. So, a, for instance, the ratio subscribers over the unsubscribed would move faster upward when you get a new person than the ratio subscribers to all listeners. Because all listeners, that number is the, the denominator is diluted a little bit because it's got all subscribers, which you're already counting. And the, so you could decide, you could see which ratio uh, you could move faster by selecting the right ratio and then applying some marketing techniques that you'd keep track of with another ratio Mm. that would then move your ratio up to where you want it. Now, when you look at these mathematical equations, you look at this sequence of numbers, it almost seems too good to be true. Is that why consciousness is implied when this is examined? Is there other factors that point to consciousness being inherently a part of this system because you did, I hope I'm not misquoting, but you did insinuate that it seemed towards the beginning that consciousness is related to these math, what appear to be mathematical equations. Yeah. Okay. Before these mathematics were discovered, everybody would always kind of talk about the likelihood of intelligent design due to things like sacred geometry and patterns in those and things like that. And so that's all that that was what's available up to now to support that idea. But now what I'm providing is, first of all, a framework on top of which everything operates. And the first application of that framework, the unit simulacrum, led to, when applied to pi, led to whole pi and a new set of common equations for space mass and the periodic table so it led so what this is really is the manifestation the first writing down of a pattern that's always been there but it's the framework and the pattern behind dimensions so to see even more of a pattern than has ever been seen in the history of the world you have to decide, each person has to decide for themselves whether that seems to indicate intelligent design or not. But for me, I mean, that's why this has been such an overwhelming and made such an overwhelming impression on me 
is because of the ramifications of it is that it is at the very core, the very foundation behind everything we know. It's that everything we know is correct to the extent that we understood it. But what we didn't understand is that we were operating in only half of the construct. We were operating in on in what on my website and what I started to mention earlier is called the first decrement. So we're operating in a radius in a circle based on radius based world and stepping up. And so it's that first level of deconstruction. So it's kind of similar to how listeners you deconstruct into the subscribers and the unsubscribed. You can have the total and then deconstruct it into different portions to derive more information So, yeah, this is a new foundation that basically everything else fits on top of. And so I think it makes things look more intelligently designed than ever when you see a common pattern behind everything. Okay, so I see here on your website, and the link is in the description. Folks should go, especially if they're just listening to the audio version of this episode, because you can see all of the equations that Craig is showing me here via screen share. But you mentioned the term, the Birdwell model for dimensions. Is this what we're seeing here now? How do we begin to understand the Birdwell model for dimensions? And I noticed there's a sort of medicine wheel style animation here of a wheel going around a central axis. Yeah, the Birdwell model for dimensions came from finding the common pattern behind space mass and periodic tables. Really, the whole pie led to the discovery of those new equations for dimensions. And whole pie itself is a fundamental transformation. First of all, whole pie was really the first natural application of the unit simulacrum to any like the transcendental mysteries of our civilization, the transcendental numbers like pi and phi. Phi had already come right from the Fibonacci series. So the next thing to consider was, all right, let's make the unit simulacrum with pi. And when I did that, when you really look at the ratio of pi to its unit, it doesn't take you long at all to discover and to realize that there are two different units for the same symbol pi. And that really is the very core of the thing, once you understand that you and you understand how to get to the next level, then you can actually make, it's almost like a dimensional shift level mm. to the new understanding of pi. Mm. Because pi that we've been using, first let me just say that the dictionary definition of pi is it is the ratio of a circle's circumference to its diameter. That's the dictionary definition the ratio of a circle circumference to its diameter. But we never use that. And physicists never use diameter. That's not much of a thing that they're interested in. What we always learned in school and what physicists use most are their equations based on R radius. We learned the circle is 2 pi R and the area is pi R squared. We always learn pi r squared, we didn't learn pi d to the second over four. 
which is the equivalent thing in diameter. So we have been living in the radius-based world. And all of our mathematics are based on the radius-based world and stuff. And what so what people don't understand is that the symbol for pi that we use actually has two absolute definitions. One is the dictionary definition, where a circle is the ratio, pi is the ratio of a circle circumference to a diameter. In other words, for a diameter of one, a unit of one, you have a whole circle. That's the dictionary definition. And so a whole circle, that's pi, when the unit is a diameter. So that's one definition. That's the dictionary definition. But that's not the one that we all use in reality and practicality. Mm. The one that we all use in reality and in practicality is pi r squared and 2 pi r. So in, in practicality, we use the r-based circle. And for an r-based circle, the exact same circle that I was just holding up, my fingers are the same length that they were a second ago, that same circle now, when you talk about a unit of a radius, now that's a two pi or circle. If the unit is now a radius, so it's a different unit. Now this is a one of R instead of a one of D. And now that exact same circle is now two pi R. Right. Huh. And if that whole circle is two pi for a one R, then half of that circle is what? If the whole circle is two pi, what's half of the circle? One. Half of, yes, it's pi. So if the whole circle is two pi, then half of the circle would be pi. Right, so So, wouldn't it be the difference between A and A over B or AB? No, so the difference is a deconstruction. It's Mm. that R, so D equals two R, in other words, D over R plus R. Okay. So R is a R is a deconstruction of D. If you take D times one over one plus one, in other words, one over two, that's R. Right. So R is the first deconstruction of D. Okay. So R is the deconstruction and D is the full. Now, how would this change our understanding? of the world around us if we use the dictionary definition of pi as opposed to the practical definition? Okay, the first, okay, we're not going to just use the dictionary definition. Okay. Because that, the dictionary definition where you say circumference is the ratio of, I'm sorry, that the pi equals our circumference of the the circle over its diameter, then that means that C circumference equals pi d. Mm. And we're not going to start with that. C equals pi d, because that's all we've ever known up to this point. That's what we have been given up to this point. And so we're going to start with a wholly new approach right from the beginning and get to something. Now, we I'll show you, we'll get right back to pi d, but we're going to take a little bit of a walk around the block to see how much you can learn by taking that walk. Okay. So let's forget about the first dimension for a second and look at the second and third dimensions. In the second, when we talk about R, the first dimension was 2 pi R, like I said earlier. And the second dimension was pi R squared. 
And the third dimension is four thirds pi r cubed. You have to learn integral calculus to be able to get to that solution because you have to integrate half a sphere and double it. It's not obvious. The transition between those dimension, the first dimension, the second dimension, moving from two pi r to pi r squared to four thirds pi r cubed is not obvious how you do that. Mm. It's not an obvious pattern. In fact, like I said, you literally have to learn integral calculus to be able to see the pattern. Right. So if we do it by diameter instead, the second and third dimensions are just in their simplest form, even as we know today, pi d squared over four and pi d cubed over three for the second and third dimension, respectively. Pi d squared over four, pi d cubed over three. It's pretty easy to see in that in those two equations that the denominator four and six, respectively, is two times the power, which was two and three, respectively. So it's easy to see that was pi d to the p over 2p, and they're both, in fact, pi d to the p over 2p. And so once you make that connection, once you can see right there, that's really the pattern behind most dimensions. So just simply saying pi d to the p over 2p, that's the exact same for the second dimension, and for the third dimension, there's no difference. So if you want to talk about, can you see the pattern behind the dimensions? It's the same equation. So yeah, you can see the pattern. You know, now, now that we've seen that pattern in the second and third dimensions, let's think about why and how the first dimension might be the same versus different. So let's first think about how it might be the same. The first dimension based on diameter, we already know, based on our discussion and based on the whole history of mankind up to this moment, that r plus r equals d. And so, you know, d equals 2r. And so r is the first deconstruction of d. And therefore, we already know that d itself has two components in it. It's got Two radii, right? Yes. It's got two radii. But when you just look at that simplified equation that you were talking about earlier, pi d, the circumference c equals pi d, that does not express the duality in any way, shape, or form. But if you go back to the other equations that I was talking about, when if you look at the equations for the second and third dimension, which are pi d to the p over 2p, then the denominator of either two or four, that actually expresses the number of radii in that dimension. In the second dimension, you have four radii. In the third dimension, you have six radii. The three axes meet at the center and radius in each of the six directions. And so since the equations for the second and third dimension have a 2p in the bottom, what if the first, let's just assume for a minute that the first one has a 2p in the bottom, and that 2p also expresses the duality of the first dimension, which is that it's actually got two dimensions, two r's, you're just not seeing them. So it's got those two that you're not seeing. You're seeing the two as one is what you're doing. And so what, let me, let me show you something that a super duper important principle that I just said. So... You can, you can, let me see here. So, one, 
one diameter equals one radius over another radius. So actually what you can really see is there's two parts, but you're only seeing them as one. Right. So what if you wanted the equation to really tell you that there really was those two parts, which there are, then you put the 2P in the denominator for the first dimension, and what would it take to then make it equal? It takes a 2 in the numerator. So the only difference between all of the dimension equations is that the first one has a 2 in front. All of them are the same except for that. So you say, what's the benefit of under of seeing of having these equations or it's seeing the bad the pattern how simple the pattern is behind everything yeah that has never been and so there's a number of fundamental principles that we can talk about one so i just told you and this is certainly on my website is that so this is the new equation and i use the new symbol whole pi to differentiate it because I told you that there's two different meanings for the symbol for pi. So you really need two different symbols. Right. So I came up with the symbol and that's all on my website, unitsimulacrum.com. But I just wanted to show you to circle back to your pi D that in the Birdwell model for dimensions, what we're doing is now, even in the first dimension, you can see that there's a 2P in the denominator that shows the secret hidden two R's that are really there. It shows the hidden duality that was there all the time. Right. Now, you can choose if you want to. Now, when these are ones, these, when these, so two, let me just say by D to the one over two. So let's just to make it more explicit here. In the first dimension, you know, the power is one. So make P equal one. Then you have 2 pi b to the p over 2p. Now, you can choose if you want to cancel out these two. Mathematically, that's perfectly valid. You choose to cancel out those twos. They cancel out. And what are you left with? You're left with pi d. That's what you always had to begin with. That's the only thing you ever had to begin with. That's what, that's what human knowledge has given you up to this point is the simplified, canceled out version of what's possible. Now, if you envision the unseen one that is two, then you put those two. So what will you envision? So two over two, oh, my pen just went. So two over two is one. If you just put the two, so th those twos cancel out, but the reason that they shouldn't cancel out is because they are two completely different separate twos. They don't mean the same thing at all. The bottom two in the denominator is the two that represent the, du the duality of all dimensions. Every dimension, the first, second, third, every one of them has the diameters within the dimension, within the diameters. Every one of them, I'm sorry, has the radii within the diameters. So the 2P expresses the duality, and the new denominator expresses the duality of all things. The 2 in the numerator, and only for the first one, simply says the first one is unique. And we know from our life experience, the first one of something is unique. Our first radio interview, our first car, first house, first girlfriend, the first of something is unique and important. May not be the best, the prototype may not be the best, but it is unique and important. And it sets precedent. 
So it's it really has. So by explicitly writing the two pi to the uh, two pi d to the p over two p, you're capturing the duality that is in the the pattern in all the dimensions and the recognition that's the first dimension, and so it has extra importance. And then other than that, the equations the same for all the dimensions. You want to see how easy it is to see that pattern. It's super easy because there's only two equations, and they're all the same except for one differs from the other by that one factor of two for the first. Other than that, they're all the same. And now it gets to where mass follows the same equation. I mean, come on. If it wasn't, oh, like space is enough. Space, I just gave you new equations for space where it follows super simple equations. Now I'm telling you mass follows the same form of equations. And now we can think of mass and the periodic table in a fundamentally new way. Since they follow the same pattern as dimensions of space, now we can talk about dimensions of mass. And that's how I discovered them, actually, is because once I had gotten to the, the dimension model for space, then I started looking around again I'm, as a chemist. I, and so it wasn't too long before I realized that the second dimension of mass, the second element, helium, stood in relationship to the first element, hydrogen, the same way as the second dimension of space stood in relation to the first dimension of space. In other words, it was a it goes from hydrogen one to helium four. So it was that one to four transition that occurs in the denominators of the the dimensions of space equations that tipped me off. And when I tried to put mass in the same form, it worked like a charm. I just everything just fell into place. I mean, it's just really and I mean, really, the answers just all fell out at that point. Because it turns out there are exactly and only 10 dimensions of mass in the periodic table, calcium being the 10th and last dimension. There's some beautiful synchronicities between the way that the pattern in the nucleus in the dimension model plays out. It's that the, the nucleus displays a change two or three elements before it's manifested in the electron orbitals. And so what that's really saying, so the electrons are responsible for the seen part of mass. That's what we see is the light being absorbed by the electrons moving in orbitals and then giving it back off. But the neutron, the nucleus does not absorb in the visible range. We can consider electrons the visible seen or seen part of mass. And with every electron comes its mated proton in the nucleus. So there's a positive proton with every negative electron, and then neutrons are just neutral. So we consider the protons, the scene, that they contribute to the scene part of mass, and neutrons, different numbers of neutrons in there can just give you different isotopes of stuff, but they're unseen. You have the sum of the seen and the unseen in the mass, and the pattern, the ratio of the seen and the unseen. It's just a beautiful pattern in the uh, periodic table that follows the same thing as space did. And it's it's just a, a beauty to behold, really. Yeah, that's fascinating. The same way you described this hidden double duality in the one, the unit one, you have that going on with the first element in the periodic table of elements. So 
does that mean that every single element is a product of its parent, which is the last in the electron grouping, right? So they are organized by how many electrons they have. So, you know, it's from hydrogen onto, as you said, the calcium elements. In the periodic table, right now, the one that we see is organized by electrons and because they have a certain pattern of filling, right. but the, the nucleus has a slightly different pattern. And it's a super interesting pattern and changes occur in it be two elements before they're seen in the electrons. So right. they occur in the unseen before the scene. So the pattern, and it's in my, on my website there, is you have two elements. The first and second element occur one right after the other. And then you have three deconstructions. So those would be deconstructions of the second dimension of mass. And then the next three elements are three dimensions. So you have two dimensions, three deconstructions, then three dimensions, and then after that, it goes to alternating dimension deconstruction. So that three and three, the three deconstructions, three dimensions is a pattern and that precedes by two elements, the formation of the P orbitals in the electrons, which are a three-dimensional, they're three axis. So there's three P orbitals and that pattern of three, the repetition of three occurs in the nucleus, in the dimension model for mass. Oh, by the way, so I will differentiate one, one thing. The Birdwell model for dimensions covers both space and mass. The dimension model of mass is only for mass, and it really goes deeper. The D Birdwell model for dimensions is the first several dimensions and the first deconstructions. And then as you get into de deeper deconstructions and the metals and stuff like that, that is the dimension model of mass. Now, since you mentioned it, I would like to make sure that we do get a chance to cover the six directions in the medicine wheel. Yeah, please do. We were about to get into that earlier. Yes, please. So let me, I'm going to, oh, oh, so I'll bring up my web page here and I'm going to share my screen so that we can talk about the same thing here. All right, first of all, you can see from the simulacrum that it's an octahedron, and you can see why it's an octahedron, because it's the upper four solutions and the lower four solutions. So the lower four solutions are case one, the upper four solutions are case two. Now, when I put pi into that, then I got whole pi, and that's based on whole diameters. And so you can just imagine the three-dimensional axes of the octahedron represent the three-dimensional axes of the three-dimensional pi, and just put the circle at the axis at the equatorial axis, and you've got that you've got a spinning pi symbol itself in general. But then, where the reason it's broken into the six colors is because again that gets back to the fact that in three dimensions there are six radii in those three dimensions. So you can see there's a green and a blue and then a yellow, red, orange, and black. Oh, I'm sorry, yellow, red, white, and black. And so six, six colors representing the six diameters. Now, the reason that's a medicine wheel goes back to when I was a younger man listening to the Art Bell show, there was a guy came on one of his guests named Ed McGaw, Eagle Man. 
and he had just come out with a book on the seven sacred rituals of the Lakota people. And I went out and got that book. And that was really the start of my path in the terms of the fact that I've incorporated Native American understanding into all of my worldview. And so the the sacred pipe ceremony, which is one of the second, there's the sweat lodge, of course, and then there's the throwing of the ball for women. And I don't remember all seven because it's been a long time, but I do have the book still. The sweat lodge is one and the pipe ceremony is the one that I was concerned with. And so... In the pipe ceremony, you, and by the way, I encourage everyone to read Black Elk Speaks. It's kind of the accepted history, the historical version of when the white buffalo calf woman brought the sacred pipe to the Lakota people. And she taught them how to pray using the pipe. And so you pray to the four directions, to the east, the bringer of new knowledge, where the new sun rises, and then to the summer, the, to the south, the summer, the, the fruition of fullness, and then to the west, the dying, the fall, the dying back of leaves, and then to the north, the white, the rest over winter, the pregnancy with anticipation of the next spring, and then down below is the green, that's the earth, and up above is the sky. The four directions, plus the down below and up above, represent the the six grandmothers or six grandfathers, the six powers of the universe. And so I chose to use the symbol, I call that the sacred pie, the sacred hoop whole pie, because it's whole pie put in the form of the sacred hoop. And in fact, there, if you look now, by the way, I'll mention the Lakota people, they use red as east and yellow as south. And I am, you might call a Hayoka. I'm backwards. <laughs> I, because I, I read a number of books by the holy man, Fool's Crow, and, and also one on lame deer. And Fool's Crow use these colors here that, that I use. And so you can see that's like the spinning earth. You can, if you imagine the sun right out in front, that bright spot on the front, you can imagine, okay, the yellow is the spring and then the summer and then the fall and then winter. And so as the earth turns, you see the different seasons come by. And of course, you got green of the blue for earth and sky. So that's the six powers of the universe representing the six radii in the three dimensions of space using the new equations. Right. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah, it does impress upon me so many different avenues that this could explain. I'm kind of stuck on the periodic table of elements, though. If you'll entertain my questions, forgive them if they're Stupid questions. Uh, I'm no expert. No, please. Uh, Absolutely. I'm curious because I remember when I was very young, I might have asked you this last time we spoke, but when I was very young, I asked one of my science teachers, oh, has every element on the periodic table of elements been discovered? And he said, no, it's possible that there are thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of more elements that we've never discovered. And that always kind of seemed like an odd answer. It was exciting, but it felt odd. It didn't feel correct. 
And I wonder if these mathematics show that it is infinite or maybe there's a sort of fixed, I guess, structure to how these elements come one after another. Can you, let's see, I can, uh, see, can, you see, yep. my, can you see my screen with the uh, yes, periodic sir. table? Yes, sir. Okay. So the way that you would get more elements is, so first of all, I was talking about the seen and the unseen part mm-hmm. of mass earlier, the protons. In the, so in the nucleus, the mass get, is made up of the protons and the neutrons. The light behavior is given just by the electrons that have very little mass. And they correspond in number to the number of protons. So elements, when we call an element carbon, nitrogen, oxygen here, it's because they have six electrons, seven electrons, eight electrons. Now, most of the time on our planet, they have a certain exact number of protons and electrons and neutrons, but it's possible now. In order to have more electrons, you'd have to have more protons. So the only way to change, so an element is called that element if it's got that number of electrons and therefore that number of protons. But it can have a different number of neutrons. So for instance, with carbon-12 or 2p, if, so p, the power, that's the number of electrons. And then 2p is the total mass. And the total mass, 2p, is made up of protons plus electrons. Mm-hmm. So the normal carbon is 12. But there's also some on this planet, there's plenty of carbon 13 and some carbon 14. You get an isotope pattern. and But it all behaves like carbon because it's got that, the way it behaves is dictated by the number of electrons, the seeing part. And the other versions of carbon that are not, are called isotopes. And so it would be possible. So it won't be possible to get like completely new elements, like in terms of the way they obey with the number of electrons, because these, this number up to this, because we've already discovered up to 120 or whatever, but it will anywhere you go on any planet or in space, different places will have different ratios of neutrons to protons. So the carbon from Mars will be different from the carbon from Earth from the carbon that's out in space. And you can actually, that's one method they use to determine cosmic origin is from the isotope ratio. And that is just the differences in the number of neutrons. So yeah, you can have hundreds of different combinations of adding just neutrons to these elements, but they are going to be stable within certain bands. You can't add a thousand neutrons to carbon and think it's going to hold together. Right. There's a narrow range within which they'll operate and maintain stability with the number of neutrons that they And I guess another way to interpret my question would be, or another way to phrase it would be, is it possible, are these elements evolving or are they fixed, right? Maybe I'm not thinking of it in the right terms, but, you know, we look around at nature and we see living organisms evolving and adapting to their circumstances and environment. Do the elements function in the same way where they're essentially within that same band they may have some slight variations over time, but they're what they are. They're not going to be replaced in a million years by an entirely new group of elements. No, that's right. They're pretty fixed. And in fact, there's some proposals have been used to use things like hydrogen and helium and the 
primordial elements as a an optimal communication system because they're so constant and throughout the galaxy universe they're everywhere to use the mathematics of and the ratios within hydrogen helium as a communication system wow but you also have to just realize it also everything always boils back down to the fact that these are simply our definitions the words and symbols that we have hung on the elements as we have observed them, they are not changing the way that we perceive them are changing. For instance, what I'm presenting here, this is a whole new nuclear periodic table. This has never been, this understanding has never been presented before, showing 10 dimensions of mass. There's one, two, carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, three, four, five dimensions of mass, then six, seven, eight, nine, and then the first anomaly in the periodic table that shows it, it shows the deconstruction, a deeper deconstruction. It occurs, it shows the pattern two elements before it actually shows up before the next major deconstruction shows up here in the metals. But anyway, here's the tenth dimension of mass. That's the tenth dimension. Oops. Sorry, where we're uh, yeah, bring that back up where. Sorry, what were you asking about? You seem to have kind of gotten around to it unless you wanted to elaborate on your answer, but I was asking about the fixed nature of the elements and uh, yeah. no, it's our understanding will will vary. And this right here, this is a major upgrade. I mean, this is a totally new understanding. And by the way, I read a paper not long ago that was a nuclear periodic table that some people in Japan were proposing, and they mentioned something called magic numbers in the nucleus, which are these beneficial ratios of protons to neutrons that provide extra stability. And these magic numbers happen to be none other than the dimensions of several of them were the dimensions of mass that I'm showing right here. So that's actually also what's making them extra stable. So this actually, so I, I am going to have to write something up on that. Since I saw that paper, I'm going to have to write something up. But this will actually explain their results. Right. They're just reporting a phenomenon. I'm reporting the pattern behind that phenomenon. Right. Wow. Yeah, it is fascinating. Maybe it's just the way that, you know, the, maybe the metals are named. But it did seem to me, looking over the periodic table of elements when I was younger, that some of the elements are very important, very common all over the place, whereas others are very rare and seemingly, I wouldn't say unimportant, but it just their role isn't as pronounced as some of the others, at least here on Earth, right? I mean, all Everything, elements are not made equal, right? Everything always gets back to ratios of ratios of ratios of ratios. The ratios that lead to stability in these the ratios of the elements that lead to the molecules, the ratio of molecules that lead to cells, the ratio of cells that lead to bodies. Everything is ratios of ratios. And finding the harmonic ratios that thrive versus the disharmonic that do not. So we've looked at the atomic level of things, right? I mean, the, the smaller dimension of things. How can this understanding help us on a macrocosm level, I mean, can these 
equations also explain the relationship between the sun and the earth or the planets? I mean, how far can we extrapolate this knowledge here? Well, a fair amount of that has already been done. It's Oh, you muted yourself, Craig. William, you're still muted. I... There you go. <laughs> Sorry, the bar, the menu bar kept disappearing as I would mouse over it. <laughs> so what I was saying was a lot of this work has been done in that physicists have mapped the the ratios of the orbits of the planets. And for instance, here, the ratio of Venus years to Earth years is 13 to 8. Those are Fibonacci numbers. And the fact that my mathematics came from the same fountain that the that describes the orbits of the planets, there, it just goes to show that there is a pattern. There's a natural, and for chemists, what we always say is that the, the situation is always trying to find the low energy stability spot. And so it turns out that sacred geometry and the Fibonacci series, the phi ratio, these represent energetically beneficial local minima that the earth settles into. Mm. Uh, I'm sorry, that the world settles, the universe settles into. Minima. Local minima, yeah. What? Local troughs, local valleys. And then there's a there's an energy barrier to get out of that and to the next. So you can have a, and that's what, uh, in chemistry, that's called the activation energy. In order to get a chemical equation to go, you have to provide some energy. So something is hanging out here in a little trough in order to get it out of that trough, you have to give enough energy to get it up into the next trough. And so that's what the electron orbitals in atoms are all about. You shine light on those and you give them enough energy to get jump out of their spot into the next higher energy level. And now they're in that little local Mac minimum. Okay. Huh. And then eventually they have to fall back down. If you stop supplying the energy, eventually they have to fall back down. And then they give off that energy, either as fluorescence or can be UVs. Okay. Yeah, this makes sense. Huh. Right. So where do we go from here? The most interesting place to take it, really, is that it's so fundamental. to You, I, you cannot overestimate the importance of the first de-instruction. So the one over one plus one. It is at the very core, core of the understanding between whole pi and old pi. I call it classic pi, whole pi and classic pi. And it's also the first de deconstruction is core, core to the elements of the periodic table. And so just simply looking at a simulacrum and meditating on a unit simulacrum and think of yourself as start thinking in terms of what is the unit, all right? What am I? What is my unit? The I am Birdwell that I am. And you start to think, of, once, once you realize that we have been living in a deconstruction, so we've been living in the world of our base reality with no access to the pattern behind everything. And now we have access to the pattern behind everything. I've given it to you. And so what you have, what everyone has to do is make that transition and step from the deconstruction world into the whole pie world, the world of the full understanding of seeing the pattern behind everything instead of being locked into the deconstruction 
and not being able to see the pattern. Right. Right. Yeah. I feel more than ever my mathematical literacy is flawed, but I, I'm doing my best over here. But I've seen some applications of this understanding, but aside from the podcast analogy, are there any other examples of this in action that you can share for the audience, maybe something a little more visual? You have to understand that I discovered this all through the bottom-up solution. So it right. was all nitty-gritty, grunting it out, fighting through equations and stuff. And so it came from an application. The reason it is here is from an application. And I have continued to apply it, and I apply it to more every paper that I publish now, I really try to have a simulacrum component. I put, I published, talk about the critical ratios and things like that. So for me, that was the only, and since I discovered it, I'm the only one who's applied it so far. And so part of the whole process is edu educating people of the benefit of understanding the simulacrum. And I will say this that the, I told you how mass spectrometry had two rules. One value has to be one and no value can be greater than one. So it's a one-based system. And so the unit simulacrum and the simulacrum system came from that as a one-based system being like the, that, that function was the key to just completely owning that system. And so there's other one-based systems, like in statistics, that's a one-based system, probability 100%, 100% equals 1.0. And so that's another one-based system that is just ideal for the unit simulacrum. And then, of course, really, at some point, other mass spectrometrists should adopt a simulacrum approach in which they have critical ratios that will give them information about their applications. But we are at the foundation stone of this, really. So the whole objective is to get to is to get the word out to help people understand why they would want to even look at it. Now, let's talk about the maybe the established theories that don't work. Are there anything that any I don't know things that maybe academia physicists are presupposing that doesn't work? after reviewing it with th this model? Is there things like maybe like the Mac Max Planck idea of these little plank planks? What are they called? The Planck, Planck constant. Yeah. Is, yeah. is there the any... Planck. Yeah. Uh, is there the any Planck. examples like string theory is another maybe an right. example? Like right. it, it certainly should be. Since I have been, I am thoroughly immersed in my application, it, what it's really going to take is someone else to take it and apply it to their application. But the th I don't expect that it's, it should not replace a lot of stuff and show things that are flat out erroneous. What it should do is act as an underlayment that will come underneath and undergird what was already being done and allow people to see what was already being done from new angles to be able to look at all the solutions, the ratios and its inverses and see all possibilities of things that they were previously only looking at a small subset of. 
So it right. really, it's the same kind of thing that we've been locked in, seeing only the radius world. When you free yourself to see all possibilities, then you don't know, then lots of things can happen. Yeah, I'm starting to understand that much clearer now. It seems that we've been given an incomplete version of our realm. And what you're doing is you're filling in that invisible duality that's just inherently there. And something that came to mind earlier while you were describing that was the egg. I mean, it's a little bit of a cliche with the whole chicken and the egg, what came first. But, you know, when you think about how, you know, something that creates life, there's two possibilities in the sense that gender is an A and a B. There are also the possibilities of will it live or will it die? There's an A and a B, right? So there's tons of variables when it comes to something like a living being, an egg. But do you see this on a cellular level when life is formed initially, this sort of as the cell divides itself? Certainly, all I'm doing is pointing out patterns that have always been there. Yeah. And I'm hanging labels on them based on our 21st century society. Based, I'm hanging labels on things that were, have been there since the beginning. And so those, those have always been. And so our understanding of them simply, sometimes we're completely unaware. Uh, sometimes we have some understanding and it changes. And at this time right now, we, we had half of the set. So we've been living in half of the world, and we had just the inkling of the other set, but the other set was never fully explored. And so now the other set is being fully explored, and so it's the wholeness, the fulfillment, the fruition, the fullness of all things. And really just now being the time that it happened, just everything's happening right now, isn't it? It's like this is a fantastic time when all knowledge is coming out, and then we have this new tool. And really, the thing is, it's a new way of thinking. I mean, really, you, as you go from the old pie, the best analogy for the whole construct is thinking of going from classic pie to whole pie and making that mental leap of realizing that we've been in the deconstruction and to realize the unification of the construct and see the bigger pattern, then it makes you start to just think a little differently. Oh, speaking of th thinking differently, I'll mention that I think that one great next step for the simulacrum is the programming or script code R. So the language R. I'm learning R now for data analysis, and I just love it. I've been obsessing. I haven't obsessed over anything since I first discovered the simulacrum. And R really is... It's the next level after the simulacrum. It's where you take packages and you do all these things with packages. And so it really is, the, it's lists of lists of lists. So it's really ratios of ratios of ratios. So it's really, R is a way to take the simulacrum and apply it to lists. And you can just do anything. It's incredible. And do you think as this become something that more people understand and integrate into their understanding. You think this will help ease the gap between science and spirituality? Because in a way, what I'm kind of understanding here is there's this invisible factor 
that science was always, oh, we can't prove it because we can't find it. And you're saying, no, it's been here the whole time. Look at these equations. Look at the math. The first time that I wrote up this, all this work was in, I had an online book years ago, PDF, and it was called Mending the Sacred Hoop, the, min, the Meaning of Whole Pie. And so part of that meaning in mending the sacred hoop is mending that disconnect between science and spirituality and to realize that that there is a pattern behind everything. We don't have to necessarily understand where it came from, but just simply to acknowledge and that there's this pretty obvious now pattern behind everything that falls into these really super simple mathematics. And if you'll just that, I mean, it's surprisingly simple. And this is just simply, we have started a new time right now. We are now, since in the unit simulacrum, everything is about defining units and things like that. So we are now in the simulacrum time. All right. So I discovered it in 2004 and then got it finally published 2016. And so whichever one of those you want to call the start date, we are now in simulacrum time. And we're only in unofficial whole pie time because a whole pie has not been officially published in the peer-reviewed literature yet. But I have submitted it to a number of journals, and no one has ever found any mistake or anything wrong with it or pointed out any error of fact or statement. They simply won't publish it. The, uh, the excuses I've gotten have, every, have ranged everything from that wouldn't be of interest to our readers to one, the funniest, most ironic I ever heard was one reviewer said it was not novel enough. <laughs> so when you get stuff like that, that's the mathematical and mathematical chemistry status quo. And I do have, oh, you've probably seen my reference list. I have well over 70 publications in peer-reviewed literature, but if it's not in their discipline, then that doesn't count for anything. So the mathematicians and the ones who model, they just, if you're not part of it's just same old problem, but uh, that's all right. So that's when I decided to really, I've tried a number and I'll keep trying. I won't completely give up on conventional scholastic journals yet. But that's why I did decide to go ahead and let me try some alternate approaches to getting it out there. Yeah, I contacted you because I listened to you. How many more people like me are out there who would to hear this? Absolutely. Now, do you think it's simply that they're not interested in anything that's outside their discipline? Could it be incompetence? Or do you think that they're just actively suppressing this kind of information because this is an idea that gets floated around in this alternative realm i'm sure you're familiar i mean people like yourself i really don't think there's a concerted effort i think part of what it is really and i think this may be a major part is ego i think that part of what they're doing is saying that you can't you a chemist a non-mathematician cannot have found something so fundamental and foundational mm. that we miss out on, we would have noticed that. We would have seen it. If there were something this important, we would have found it. See, now, and this is the, this seems to be the major issue that I hear with mathematics 
It's that they're theorists, right? They, you're working in an actual something practical. You have something in Came front from of the you. bottom up, absolutely right. Whereas these guys, they just dream these lofty equations, but there's no substance to it. So you'd imagine that they would actually appreciate people like you who had the polymathematical sort of approach where you integrate you know, multiple uh, things. I tried two approaches, at least two approaches. Initially, when I first discovered it and submitted, I was so excited, man. My submission letter to the journal, I think the first one might have been Journal of Mathematical Chemistry. And at some point, and it won't be too long, I'm going to publish every submission letter and every rejection letter for the 13 journals, mm -hmm. every one of them. I'm going to make them, put them all up on, on my website because they're very entertaining. But yeah. anyway, and the responses are all super short. But initially I was saying, hey, I've discovered this fantastic new thing that has all these potential ramifications, world-changing implications. And all they got back was, no, that's not of interest to us. <laughs> but then after a few more tries, here and there, different journals, finally got to the point where I was saying, all right, I challenge you to be scientifically objective. What I have here is scientifically, undeniably, mathematically true. All I'm asking you to do is use the scientific method. Either test it and publish it if it's true or prove it's not true. And I mean, I got pretty confrontational by the end. And none of them ever proved anything wrong. No one ever found anything substantively anything wrong with the math whatsoever out of all the mathematics and chemistry journals and the editors that I submitted it to. Right. But they just simply wouldn't publish. Jeez. They always found an excuse. See, now, maybe you listened to his show already, maybe not, but I would recommend, and I'll put you in touch with him because he's been on my show before, but I think Alex Sakaris of the Skeptico podcast. Oh, sure. Skeptico, yeah. yeah I think he of would, I I think he would yeah. be a, a better, not that I didn't do a good job. I think I did the best I could, and I appreciate you coming to me first, but I think he I could, appreciate you a lot, man. I really do. Thank you. Likewise, I do, truly, but I think putting you in touch with Alex would put you in front of a crowd, an audience that was more interested. Not that my audience won't be interested. I'm sure they will. But he gets a regular science oh, sure, yeah, crowd yeah. for his no, show. And and I'm perfectly willing to take the Alex Sakaris treatment, too. And he, <laughs> he doesn't mess around. He'll hold you to account and to points. And I think that's that'd the great be thing about for... the simulacrum and the math. It's all easily proved. Right. That's Undeniable. why I think you would be a good candidate for his show, because he would take his time to go through it. And I think he would find you are right on course with what yeah, he believes if you in. want to point him toward me, tell, just tell him that you talk to me and you can give him unisimulacrum.com. And if it's something that he thinks he'd be in, I'd love to talk to Alex. He's, again, I love his podcast and I'm, I would absolutely love to stand right, right up against him and take him on the unisimulacrum. I'm glad you're familiar with him already because it is interesting to introduce people to him. Who aren't familiar mm. with him already, because you know <laughs> you better be ready. his reputation. But I would love to see <laughs> that. And uh, yeah, as we wrap up here, I mean, is there anything, obviously folks should go to the website. I'm going to leave that in the episode description. Is there anything outside of going back and folks can listen to our first conversation and see your full presentation and how you came to this conclusion or this made this discovery 
Anything else you'd like to promote? Is there a place where people can go read the articles you've written? Obviously, you said you've published so many peer-reviewed Everything really is at the unit simulacrum.com. My my full list of peer-reviewed articles is there. You can if on the far right menu is references and you go to the full reference list. Everything since 1994 is that I've ever published is there and up until this last year. And all my books and papers and everything. And then the, my videos are also up there. I did I just for my niece and my daughter actually, we did a video here just to have something to put up on YouTube. And really, over and over again, at the site, at unitsimulacrum.com, the major four, there's four main publications that led to the simulacrum. The bottom-up solution was, oh, and by the way, I was working on a book chapter. I was editor of a book and writing a book chapter when I discovered all this. I was, it was actually working on chapter seven of Modern Methods for Lipid Analysis when I discovered all this stuff. And then the first paper came out was the bottom-up solution to the triacylglycerol lipidome. And then it was real interesting with the bottom-up solution. I actually had six different cases. And then the next one, I had generalized it to boil it down to be in two different versions of really three cases. And then so I, keep, I kept generalizing, boiling it down, generalizing until I finally got to the simulacrum. And that it just generalized, generalized, and then got all the way there. Yeah. So, folks, there's plenty to read. There's plenty to see. There's a lot more to learn go to the website and yeah, I mean, I guess that's the best way folks can support you is just by reading, learning and passing along to their friends. Do you plan on publishing this in a book form one day or putting this out in a way that people can buy the material somehow? I should. My, my real goal, I am working on going ahead and try to get a, the whole pie publication in a peer reviewed journal. I mean, I'm not going to give up on that. That's the most important thing. A book, I mean, I did write one years ago and it was online. A book just takes so much time and there's not much in it for the author. And I should, I mean, that's a great way to get stuff out there. But, and so I'm sure I'll have to do a book at some point, but for now I'm trying to do everything on my website and I'm going to try to keep adding to it through the blogs. Mm. And really I'm going to try to use the blogs to kind of update new things that I'm using it for. Wonderful. Yeah, I Love to see that one day, even if it's just your articles and blogs put together in a book. I mean, that would be okay. incredible. <laughs> well, but, blogs are off of the website also, by the way. Yeah. So you can already see those. Yeah. I'm going to put that in the description. So folks, please go follow up there and of course, sign up on our Patreon and sign up to see the first conversation we had where we went into a lot of this stuff in depth and we kind of retrace some steps here today. So it's good, I think, that folks listen to this one first before they wade yeah. into the deeper waters. Get the big there. picture. Yeah. But uh, thank you so much for being here. And I really appreciate you, like I said, coming to me with this. And I hope I can continue to help. I hope this is a help. And folks listening, if you'd like to get in touch with Dr. Birdwell, is there a way folks can get in touch with you? Maybe there's folks out there who have something to add, to contribute, to Sure. You can email me at birdwell at birdwell.com. Of right course, on. the website and, and it's B-Y-R-D-W-E-L-L. Sure. But cool. really the website is the way I'm going to put everything out. No advertisements or anything. It's all just me trying to share, share knowledge. I love it. Yeah. Please folks, if you'd like to even just tell Dr. Birdwell how you felt about this episode, you enjoyed it, you learned something. I think that'd be appreciated. But until next time, 
immerse yourself in the moment wherever you are in the unit simulacrum. Right, and that is our conversation with the great Dr. Birdwell. Very interesting gentleman. He actually signed up for the Patreon, sent me a message, and uh, his niece is also a, a part of the Patreon. Shout out to her. Uh, and yeah, I interviewed him on the show. And then we had another go because the first conversation, although the information came through great, uh, the presentation. There was one minor hiccup. It was hard to see the slides that he was sharing. Uh, he was sharing it on the TV behind him instead of uh, screen sharing, which was my mistake. Partly, I should have pointed that out, but uh, I ran with it. So if you want to hear that interview where we get into the same concepts with more detail, sign up on the Patreon. I'm going to be posting that on the Rockfin along with the video version of this episode as well uh, tonight. So stay tuned for that. If you'd like to see the slides that Dr. Birdwell was sharing with us, uh, of course, Dr. Birdwell hopefully will be back on the show. And I'd like to do something for the patrons where maybe we do like a Q&A live so others can ask uh, questions for him because a lot of this stuff I'll admit went over my head math is not my strong suit although I did understand uh, most of what he was saying that I still don't understand what spectrometry is I don't even think that's the right way to pronounce it but either way that's Dr. Birdwell very intelligent guy and if what he's saying is true he found the unit simulacrum so go figure but in other news look forward to a future conversation with him q a session uh, we've got a sponsor a new sponsor for the podcast their name is austin they're out in the great island nation of hawaii and i'm gonna read a message this is the sponsorship read that he wants me to read. And I'll say for everyone, uh, total clarity here. I'm only going to read this once. Okay. We'll riff here on out, but I'm going to read his message. This is one, um, I guess it's more of a suggestion. It's not really, he's not, it doesn't demand that I read this, but, uh, I thought it would be cool to read it and then riff from there. So let's see. <clears throat> Aloha, fellow cannabis enthusiasts. Get ready to embark on a botanical adventure that spans across continents and climates. Welcome to Olympic Seeds, a cannabis breeder that has journeyed from the lush Washington rainforest to the arid Colorado desert and now finds its home on the beautiful island of Hawaii. Our story begins in the dense rainforests of Washington where this dedicated breeder hand-selected the finest cannabis genetics, honing their craft amidst the misty mountains and vibrant foliage. From there, he traversed the vast landscapes. From there, he traversed the vast landscapes, bringing its expertise to the arid Colorado desert, where the harsh sun and dry air challenged our breeders to create strains that thrive in extreme conditions. 
Driven by a relentless passion for innovation, we sought the perfect harmony between nature's elements and the tranquil shores of Hawaii. Known for its idyllic climate and rich volcanic soils, it is here amidst the breathtaking beauty of the island that Olympic Seeds has founded its true essence. Our seeds nurtured by the warm tropical sun and embrace by the ocean breeze produce cannabis plants of unparalleled quality and flavor. From the vibrant sativas that awaken your senses to the soothing indicas that melt away stress, our diverse selection of strains will transport you to a paradise of cannabis cultivation. Olympic Seeds takes pride in our meticulous breeding process, meticulously selecting and crossbreeding the most exceptional genetics to create strains that embody the spirit of each unique environment they hail from. So whether you're a seasoned grower or a curious beginner, join us on this extraordinary journey. Unleash your inner gardener and experience the magic of Olympic Seeds. All right. Wow, that was a great ad read. Give it up to Austin for writing that. He, like Garrett, our other sponsor of the Hit Kit, is a self-made, self-starter, employee-owned company. Uh, He, like Garrett, is an American-made small business. And both focused on cannabis products. One, uh, the actual plant itself, and the other, the Hit Kit, the number one way to get lit. You know the Hit Kit. Use the promo code CRAZY to save 15% off at checkout when it comes to the Hit Kit. But when it comes to Olympic Seeds, you got to reach out to Austin directly, austin at olympicseeds.com, or you could reach out to him on Instagram at 1950sduckweb. That's the numbers 1950, the number S, and the word duck, the word web, at 1950sduckweb. So we're going to put that in the description of the episode. What the hell? Thank you to Austin and Garrett for sponsoring the show. Thank you to all our Patreon supporters, our Rockfin supporters, our Substack reporter supporters and reporters, all the reporters on Substack. I'll be posting more stuff on Substack very soon, so stay tuned for that. And uh, yeah, not much else to say for this episode. Please do go and listen to the first interview with Dr. Birdwell for more information and go to his website. That is listed also in the description. So uh, thank you to all of our wonderful sponsors and everybody who gave us a one-time donation last week. I set the new goal we can get a thousand dollars in one-time donations by this friday that's july 21st we get a thousand dollars in one-time donations by july 21st we only need 900 more dollars we get 900 more dollars in one-time donations by july 21st i will commit to putting out three episodes a week indefinitely for the rest of this podcast's uh time So if you want to see that happen, you can support the show with a one-time donation at PayPal at Mystic Mark, all one word, or Venmo at Mystic Mark, M-Y-S-T-I-C-M-A-R-K. You can send us a one-time donation on Cash App. That's the cash sign Mark Steves Jr. And then um, that's spelled, all of it's in the episode description. It's spelled M-A-R-K-S-T-E-E-V-E-S Jr. J-R, just the J-R. 
and then um, everything else is in the description of the episode. Help us achieve that goal. That's all I'll say for this episode. Thank you for tuning in and immerse yourself in the moment wherever you are in the now. feels nourished and glows. You radiate confidence. Osea makes giving your skin a glow up easy with their clean, clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. 
This seaweed-powered duo features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.